Well, if you have your Bibles, I want you to hold it up with me right now, and I want you to repeat this affirmation with me, okay? This is God's Word. I believe what it says about God. I believe what it says about me. It shows me how I can know God. And it shows me how I can live for God. Now, open up your copy of God's Word to the book of Obadiah. Now, if you're not careful, you're going to pass right by that book. It's the shortest book in the Old Testament. It's only one chapter long. It's only 21 verses long. But even though it's a short book, it's packed with some important truths that are relevant for us today. And so, Obadiah, as we continue our series on the minor prophets. Now, let me ask you a question. What is the mother of all sins? What is the mother of all sins? The sin from which all other sins were birthed. The sin from which all other sins were conceived. Have you ever given that much thought? Have you ever thought about it? Well, let me just let you know that sin didn't originate here on earth. The Bible tells us that sin actually began in heaven with an angel by the name of Lucifer. We are told that, that he was created by God the model of perfection. In other words, when God created him, God held him up as a standard of what perfection could be. We are told in God's word that he was perfect in wisdom. He was perfect in beauty. He was the most powerful of all God's created order. But then something happened. We're told in Ezekiel chapter 28 verse 17 that, that his heart became filled with pride. In Isaiah chapter 14 we're told how that happened. In Isaiah 14 verses 13 and 14 we read this. It says this of, of Lucifer, that angel. For you said to yourself, I will ascend to heaven. I will set my throne above God's stars. I will preside on the mountain of the congregation. I will climb to the highest heavens. I will be like the most high God. Five times we read that phrase, I will. And because of that pride that welled up in Lucifer's heart, he rebelled against God. But God in a moment, in an instant, expelled him from heaven. He was cast down. And this angel, who was known as Lucifer, the model of perfection, became known as Satan, the devil, our arch enemy. And the same sin that filled his heart, pride, is the sin that, that he used to deceive Adam and Eve and, and cause them to fall into sin. And, and he has been using that sin ever since to deceive every man and, and every woman who has ever been born on planet earth. And Obadiah is all about that sin. It teaches us about, about that sin, its consequences, and its results. Now, Obadiah is, 
is written by a prophet named Obadiah. There are over 20 times that that name appears in the Old Testament. It speaks of 13 different people. But this is the only time that that this prophet is referred to in the Old Testament when he wrote this book. The name Obadiah literally means servant of Jehovah. And that's what Obadiah was. He considered himself a servant, a slave of the Almighty God. And as he delivered his prophecy, his, his prophecy wasn't to Judah, his people. His prophet, prophecy wasn't to Israel. His prophecy was to Edom. In Obadiah chapter 1, we read these words. This is the vision that the sovereign Lord revealed to Obadiah concerning the land of Eden. Now, if you want to understand who Edom was, you have to go all the way back to the first book in the Bible, the book of Genesis. And in Genesis 36, verse 1, we read this. It says, this is the account of the descendants of Esau, also known as Edom. And so Edom was the nation that came out of Esau. Now, in case you don't know, Esau was the twin son of Jacob and Rebekah. He was the brother of Isaac. And the Bible tells us that even before Esau and Isaac were born, they were fighting, they were quarreling in the womb. In Genesis 25, verses 21 and following, it says this. It says, Rebecca became pregnant with twins. But the two children struggled with each other in her womb. So she went to ask the Lord about it. Why is this happening to me? And the Lord told her, the sons in your womb will become two nations. From the very beginning, the two nations will be rivals. And so God let Rebecca know from the very beginning that in her womb were two boys who would become two nations, and these two nations would be at odds from the day that they were born. And that's what happened. When they were born, they was opposite as night and day. Esau was, was an outdoorsman. He, he loved to hunt. Jacob was more soft-spoken. He was a homebody, and, and he loved to cook. And that's how they grew up. Esau grew up liking the outdoors. Um, Jacob grew up loving being at home. And one day, Esau was out hunting, and and Jacob was at home cooking a stew. And Esau came home, and that day he he hadn't bagged a thing, he hadn't killed a thing, and he came home hungry. And he asked Jacob, what are you cooking? And Jacob held it up and said, I'm cooking some stew. And it is a good stew. And Esau said, well, can I have some of this stew? And Jacob said, sure, you can have some stew. But it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you your birthright. And Esau said, what good is a birthright if I die of hunger? You can have my birthright. Give me some stew. And so Esau sold his birthright to his brother for a bowl of stew. Later on, the Bible tells us that that his father Isaac was getting ready to to give his blessing to Esau, who was the firstborn of the twins. And and the firstborn son received the blessing from the father. But with his mother's help, Jacob deceived his father 
and stole the blessing from Esau. Oh, that made Esau very angry. And Esau plotted to kill Jacob. From the moment he, he committed that act, Esau knew, I am going to kill Jacob. But he had to wait until his father died. Well, Jacob, or, um, Jacob knew that his brother wanted to kill him, so, so he fled town and, and went to live with his uncle and his aunt. And he lived there for a number of years. Eventually he came back home and, and he and Esau were reconciled. But, but throughout their history there were always problems. There was always animosity between Jacob's descendants and Esau's descendants. When the Israelites were on their way to the promised land, they wanted to go through Edom, but the king of Eden would not let them go through their nation. And he even sent out his army to keep Israel from going through Edom. A number of times throughout their history, Edom and, and Israel went to war. And, and when David was king, he, he conquered them and he put them in servitude under him. And then in 586 B.C., when, when Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians... The people of Eden sat on the cliffs as, as the people were being taken into captivity. And they jeered and they mocked and they made fun of the Israelites. Needless to say, there was no love lost between the Israelites and the Edomites. But understand, this prophecy isn't a prophecy delivered by someone with an agenda. This prophecy isn't delivered by, by an old prophet who was just angry and upset. This is a prophecy delivered by the prophet of God giving the word of God, speaking on behalf of God. And, and as we read these 21 verses in this short book in the Old Testament, we discover four timeless principles that we see throughout the Bible, from, from the first book to the very last book. And that's what I want to give you this morning. Here's principle number one. Pride comes before the fall. Mark it down. Write it in the margin of your Bible. Put it on your note sheet. Pride always comes before the fall. Look what it says in Obadiah chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. You have been deceived by your own pride. Because you live in a rock fortress and make your home high in the mountains. Who can ever reach as, as way up as here, you ask boastfully. But even if you soared as high as the eagles and built your nest among the stars, I would bring you crashing down, says the Lord. He literally says this of Obadiah. The pride in your heart has deceived you. Doesn't that sound vaguely familiar to what we read about Lucifer in Ezekiel 28? Pride has filled your heart. You see, the same thing that happened to Lucifer in, happen, in heaven happened to Eden standing there on that hill. Now, Edom was a nation that was built on a mountain. And because they were built on a mountain, they, they felt like they were invulnerable. They felt like they could not be conquered. And, and their capital city, Petra, 
was in a place that was absolutely impossible to reach. As a matter of fact, there was only one way that you could get to Petra, the capital city, and conquer Edom. You had to go through a 4,500-foot ravine or canyon that was very narrow, that was full of twists and turns. And on each side of the canyon were sand cliffs. And so any army that came had to march through one by one or two by two to get to Petra to try to conquer that capital. And because of that, they felt like that they could never be conquered. As a matter of fact, just several, 12 to 24 Skilled fighters could hold off an entire army if they were positioned at the right place. And so here they were, the Edomites, high in the mountains. They felt like they were invulnerable. They felt like that their capital was impregnable. They could not be conquered. And yet God tells them, even if you soared as high as the eagle, He says, even if you built your nest among the stars, I will bring you down. As we read in verses 5 through 9, we discover that it was not only their location that made them proud. We discover that their wealth, their allegiances with other nations, their wisdom and their military all contributed to their pride. And, And as I think about the Edomites and how they thought that they were invincible. They thought that they could never be conquered. I, I think about America. And I think about where we are today. Now let me make very clear to you a truth that you need to understand. America is not the New Testament version of Israel. There's some that preach that. There's some that teach that. They say that America is the Israel of today. No. The church is the Israel of today. But the fact of the matter is, America has been blessed by God. And because we have been so blessed, we think that we're invincible. We think that we can never be conquered. We look at our our military and, and we recognize that we are the strongest nation on earth. We look at our economy and even though we have problems with our economy, we are the wealthiest nation on earth. I mean, here in America, most of us aren't concerned with where our next meal is going to come from. We're simply concerned with what our next meal is going to be. Am I going to eat chicken or am I going to eat steak? Am I going to eat vegetables or am I going to just skip it and go to dessert? And that's the nation that we live in. And because of our military strength and because of our economic prosperity and because we have locks on our doors and because we have air-conditioned homes, we have this illusion that that we're self-sufficient and we no longer need God. And we rely on our government and we rely on our bank accounts and we rely on our material possessions and eventually we have this idea that God is no longer needed in our society. And that's what happened to Edom. But understand, when we begin to trust in our abilities, our resources, our strength, our wisdom, we are headed for destruction. Pride comes before the fall. 
And pride always results in the fall. You see, pride at its root is having this idea that you don't need God. Pride at its root is this idea that I can be God. I don't need him anymore. I can replace God in my life. And and when we begin to believe that, we are headed for a fall. But understand, pride is simply an illusion. It's looking in a mirror at yourself that skews our reality. And we believe that reality. Have you ever seen those mirrors that you can stand in front of? And it can make you look a certain way? And we look at some of the mirrors and we laugh and we go, Oh my goodness, I hope I don't look like that. And then we step in front of other mirrors and we go, man, I hope I look like that. Well, that's what pride does. I saw a friend of mine on Facebook this, this past week that, that um, had a beach cover-up that they bought at the beach. And, you know, it was one of those cover-ups that you put on that gives you the body that you don't have. And that's what pride does. Pride is an illusion that makes us think that we're self-sufficient when we're really not. No wonder God hates pride. Because when we're full of pride, we don't have any room for God or the things of God in our lives anymore. I want you to listen to what some of the verses in God's Word says about pride. Proverbs 15, 25. The Lord tears down the house of the proud. Proverbs 16, verse 5, the Lord detests the proud. They will surely be punished. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction, haughtiness before a fall. When Jesus was teaching his disciples, he said in Matthew 23, verses 11 and 12, the greatest among you must be a servant, but those who exalt themselves full of pride will be humbled And those who humble themselves will be exalted. James, who became an apostle, who was the half-brother of Jesus, said this in James 4, verse 6. He said, but he, God, gives even more grace to stand against such evil desires. As the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but he gives favor to the humble. And so let me ask you a question. Have you humbled yourself before God? Have you acknowledged your need for him? Be honest. Or are you living a rather self-sufficient life? I'm doing okay by myself. I'm a self-made man. I'm a self-made woman. Look at the job I've obtained. Look at the neighborhood I live in. Look at the things that I have. Pride comes before the fall. Edom thought that they were invincible, that no one could conquer them, and they were destroyed. There isn't even an Edom on earth anymore. Pride comes before the fall. Here's the second truth. Not doing good can be just as wrong as doing bad. In verses 11 and following, Obadiah gives what I believe is is an eyewitness account of the destruction of Jerusalem by Babylon. And what we see 
as we read these verses is that Edom is sitting on the sidelines watching and cheering as their kinsmen are destroyed, slaughtered, and led into captivity. Listen to what it says in verses 10 and 11. Because of the violence you did to your close relatives in Israel, you will be filled with shame and destroyed forever. When they were invaded, you stood aloof, refusing to help them. Foreign invaders carried off their wealth and cast lots to divide up Jerusalem, but you acted like one of Israel's enemies. If you have your Bibles open and you look on to verse 12, it says this, you should not have gloated. That word gloat is literally translated enjoyed. In other words, God said you should not have enjoyed the suffering and the anguish that the Jews were going through. It goes on and it says you should not have rejoiced. Now here's the thing that you need to understand. Edom didn't implicitly come in and invade Israel. Babylon did. However, God says when Babylon did that, Edom stood aloof. They refused to help. They simply watched and refused to help. And God said to them, I am holding you just as guilty for not doing the right thing in helping as I do Babylon for doing the wrong thing and actually invading If you were here last week, you know we we talked about some of the sins that were found in Israel. And one of the things that was found in Israel was injustice. They were oppressing the poor. And the Bible makes it very clear that that angered God. And because of that, God was going to judge them. You see, all too often we, we focus on our sins of commission Those things that we shouldn't do, rather than focusing on our sins of omission, things that we ought to do, and we don't. But what we need to understand is that sins of omission, not doing the right things, are just as bad as sins of commission, doing the wrong things. In James chapter 4 verse 17, it says this, remember... It is sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. Did you hear that? Remember, it's a sin to know what you ought to do, what you should do, and then you don't do it. So what are the things that that you should do that you're not doing that God is going to hold you accountable for? Don't be like so many today. And simply focus on the sins of commission. And you feel good about yourself. Well, I don't cheat on my wife. I don't go out and get drunk. I don't. And you can fill in the blank. Don't just focus on those. You need to ask yourself, what are those things in God's word that God tells me to do that I am not doing? Who should I have helped? What should I have given? Who should I have talked to? And on and on we go. You see, not doing good 
is just as wrong as doing bad. Here's the third truth. We reap what we sow. In Obadiah chapter 1 verse 15, God gets to the point of what he is going to do to the nation of Edom. And this is what he says. He says, the day is near when I, the Lord, will judge all godless nations. As you have done to Israel, so it will be done to you. All your evil deeds will fall back on your own heads. Now, in the secular world, we like to call that karma. And you know that comes from a pagan religion. We say, well, that's just karma. They got what they deserve. What goes around comes around. Well, I've got news for you. It's not karma. It's a biblical principle. The Bible teaches that we reap what we sow. What goes around comes around. You dig a ditch, you'll fall in that ditch. You throw a stone, you'll get hit by that stone. In Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, it says, Don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. In other words, you will always reap what you sow. Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful desire will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. But those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. Did you get that? The law of the harvest. We reap what we sow. We sow to our sinful nature and we will reap the results of that. We sow to a righteous nature, a redeemed nature, and we will reap the results of that. Listen carefully. If you sow bad financial decisions for years, you're going to reap poverty. Understand it. Years ago, when my kids were young, we were tight. And we were tight for a variety of reasons. We were generous in our giving, but we were tight in our spending. And we were tight because we didn't have a lot. And we were tight because we knew at some point in the future we wanted to be able to do some things. And so, there were some things that that other people did that we never did. We never went on expensive vacations. We always found a vacation that was pretty much free. We never went out to eat that much. I mean, our friends would go out to eat after church on Sunday night and We would either go and just sit there or we wouldn't go at all. My kids used to fuss at us because on Sunday night when we lived in Titusville, Florida, everybody would go to Taco Bell and and we'd say, we don't have the money to go to Taco Bell. And then when we would go to Taco Bell, they would want a Choco Taco. That was a dessert taco. We'd say, you can't afford a Choco Taco. And everybody else would want the Nike tennis shoes and and everything else. And we would get the off brands. And they always struggled with that. But then when my kids got through college with no financial debt, no student loans, they kind of appreciated our sacrifice. You see, you reap Financial decisions that are foolish, and you're going to reap financial poverty. 
you so bad health choices for years. And you're going to reap bad health. And there may be the exceptions to the rule of the person who smokes a pack of cigarettes a day or the person who drinks a six-pack of beer a day or whatever else. There may be the exception to the rule that they don't destroy their lungs or they don't destroy their liver or the person who, who goes to the buffet every day and their cholesterol gets to be 436. I don't even know if it goes that high. And they sit back and they think, why is my health so bad? Really? You see, we sow poor health decisions, we reap poor health. And we sow cruelty and meanness to everyone in our life. We treat each other hatefully. We're going to reap isolation or meanness in return. We reap what we sow. And somehow we have this idea that we're the exception to the rule. We have this idea that the principle won't apply to us. But understand, it's a biblical principle. We reap what we sow. You think your sexual sins won't come back to haunt you? You think your years of alcohol or drug binges won't have an effect on you? You think spending more money than you have is not going to somehow affect you? You're going to be okay? Wake up. We reap what we sow. But finally, here's the fourth principle, and it's the best. God keeps his promises. You see, in the midst of this prophecy telling what is going to happen to Edom and how God is going to judge Edom, he makes a promise to Israel, to Judah. And, and you need to understand that Obadiah wrote this prophecy as the nation was being taken off into captivity. They had nothing to hope for. It's not like God was going to come in somehow at the last moment and deliver them they were going into captivity and yet God promised that even in the midst of their captivity he would one day restore them listen to what it says in verse 17 and and then on in verses 20 and 21 it says but Jerusalem Will become a refuge for those who escape. It will be a holy place. And the people of Israel will come back to reclaim their inheritance. And then it goes on to say the exiles of Israel will return to their land. The captives from Jerusalem exiled in the north will return home. Those who have been rescued will go up to Mount Zion in Jerusalem to rule over the mountains of Eden. And the Lord himself will be king. In other words, what God is saying is there's coming a day, and we know that it was 70 years in the future. There's coming a day when God will take them out of the Babylonian captivity. He will restore them to Jerusalem, and he will rebuild the city. God is saying there's coming a day when, when I will defeat your enemies. There is coming a day when I will establish your kingdom. Now understand, part of that prophecy has been fulfilled. The people of Israel were brought back home from captivity in Babylon. 
But the last part of that, that prophecy where it says the Lord himself will be your king, that hasn't been fulfilled yet. So here today, we, we have this promise that is given to the people of God that we are waiting to be fulfilled. There is coming a day when, when God himself will be our king and we will live with him and we will rule with him forever. When is that going to be fulfilled? Well, the Bible says in Revelation it's going to be fulfilled at the end of this age. There's coming a day where, where God is going to take this earth that is filled with sin. He's going to destroy it completely. And he is going to make everything new. And we are told that, that God is going to come down to earth. And he is going to make his dwelling among us. And we will be his people. And he will be our God. And we are told at that time in Revelation that there will be no more sickness, no more suffering, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more death. And we are told that God himself will wipe away every tear. You see, that's the promise that we have as the people of God. This sinful, wicked world in which we live where it seems like Perhaps more often than not that evil wins out over good. We know that this isn't the end. We know that we're just in the middle of the story. We're just in the middle of the movie. We haven't got to the climax yet. But when it comes, oh, it's going to be incredible. God is going to conquer all. And he is going to rule and reign forever. We're going to be his people. I got to tell you, I'm looking forward to that day. I'm looking forward to that day where, where sin is going to be no more. He makes everything new. And the reason I'm looking forward to that is because I love Jesus with all my heart, but oh, I still struggle with sin. Do you? I mean, do you struggle with, with that desire to say the wrong thing and do the wrong thing at times? I do. And I'm so looking forward to that day where that struggle is going to be no more. I'm so looking forward to that day where the temptations that are put before my eyes every day are going to be gone. Looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to, to seeing people that I know and that I love who have gone before me. More than anything else. I look forward to just worshiping the Lord. And telling Him thank you. For loving me and having mercy on me. Pouring his grace out on me. God keeps his promises. So what are you going through right now? What's happening in your life right now? Does it seem like the enemy is winning? Take hope. It's not over. And God will keep his promises. Let's review. Pride comes before the fall. There are some of you here this morning who need to acknowledge that. You're living a self-sufficient life. Your thought is when you die, you're going to stand before God and, and somehow the good that you have done is going to outweigh the bad that you've done. Pride 
comes before the fall. You need to humble yourself before God. Acknowledge your need for Him. Accept His grace and mercy. And if that's where you're at, we want to give you the opportunity to give your heart and life to Him today. There are others of you who are caught up in sin. And it may not be sins of commission. You may not be caught up in the immorality that the world calls immoral, but but the truth of the matter is there are things that God has told you to do that you're not doing, and that's sin, and you need to get your life right with Jesus. You need to do it right now. You reap what you sow. There are some of you right here right now who are in the midst of reaping the consequences of poor sinful decisions. And again, you need to humble yourself before God. Ask His forgiveness. Ask His mercy. And ask Him to intervene in your life and help you. And as you do, you need to hold on to the promises of God. Here's what we're going to do. We're doing things a little bit different this morning. I want you to stand with me right now. And as you stand, I want to pray. And after we pray... We're going to open up our altar. Our band is going to sing. And there are many of you that just need to come to this altar and you need to pray. You need to pray for yourself. You need to pray for people you love. But we're also going to be down front. I'm going to be down front. Pastor Scott's going to be down front this morning. In the future, we're going to have more people down front. But, but if you need someone to pray specifically for you, You need someone to intervene for you. We would love to do that. And so I'm going to pray. And then if God's working in your life, if there's a decision that you need to make, let me encourage you to make that today as we have this time of commitment, as we have this time of of invitation. Father God Almighty, this is the day that you've made and we will rejoice and we will be glad. We thank you, Father, for your word that is true and we thank you that it is sharper than a two-edged sword and Lord your word can convict us where we need convicting and I pray right now Father that you will convict us Lord those who need to give their lives to you I pray Father they'll swallow their pride their ego and they will step out from their seat and they will come forward and say I'm giving my life to Jesus today Lord give them courage Lord, those who need to just come to this altar and pray, Lord, I pray that they will see this as an altar. Father, those who need deliverance, Father, deliver them today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.